While our servers are collecting the offering, let's celebrate um, our giving last week. That was just awesome. Um, we asked you to pray about and to consider giving to Stillwater Cares. And we, we had our best offering ever. If you look on our bulletin, it's listed in there. But I'm going to assume since a number of people came up to me today and said, hey, can we still give to that? And the answer is yes. Uh, you can still make out the check to Sunnybrook and uh, put them in the bottom of that memo category for Stillwater Cares. Um, but I'm going to assume that we'll go over the $9,000 mark, which is just great. So really encouraged by that. Love um, partnering with other organizations. And uh, when I say this, let's never kind of give ourselves a creepy pat on the back, like aren't we awesome? Let's not do that, because that's just not the right attitude that we should have. Um, but let's be thankful to God that he has put it in our hearts to demonstrate his character of generosity. And so that part I really am excited about. And then on the other side of that, which is, um, or kind of similarly to that, is that our youthquake offering was really strong as well. And so for those of us that were in the lobby um, purchasing snacks and cakes and uh, all that kind of stuff, that was great. One of the things that was really exciting was that um, although a number of us did that and paid way more for a pie than we ever really, and we didn't, we didn't buy the pie. We were trying to support our young people going to Youthquake. That's what we were really doing. A pie was like one of the small benefits. Um, but it was really encouraging that many of you actually signed up to do a scholarship for another student. And so we raised about $4,000 for that, which is just great that we had those. Um, it's good. Good, good, good. So let's thank God for uh, his kindness and for his moving. At least this is what I pray for. I'd, I'd, actually, I'd be pretty sad if just one person wrote a check for 8,500 bucks. Because that's really, it's not what we ever want to do. We want this to be kind of an overflow and kind of a natural response for all of us. And, and nobody did that, by the way. It wasn't just one person was awesome and the rest of us were terrible, okay? Um, if that does happen, we may need to talk. Um, and you can talk back at me because obviously I would have failed too. Uh, one other thing that we need to talk about before we jump into our message, another announcement, is that we are doing, um, our, our camps are starting up. So our college students are gone. Do you miss them? Yeah, yeah. Again, not the driving, not, the, not Perkins Road, not that kind, not Hall of Fame miss, right? But everywhere else. If we could figure out how to get all of our, Oza, our OSU students um, to carpool in two or three cars, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Um, but they're gone, and let's continue to pray for them. And uh, kind of that next phase of transition is going to be our public schools that will uh, be having their final week this week. And let's remember to pray for um, our young people, and let's pray for our teachers and our administration. Um, let's remember Sunnybrook Christian School as well. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that's happening. We're in that kind of that transition mode. Um, let's be grateful to God for uh, those that really have a heart and a desire for young people and a heart and desire for Jesus and they're doing it within our public school system. Um, so let's do that. And also recognize my, my public school uh, was something I was a part of, okay? So I, and then when summer got, when summer was about to happen and I would come home, I'd be excited, man, because the last day of school is like almost like, it was like Christmas to me. And I was so excited I would come home and I would just kind of come in the front door and my mom would be crying on the floor, you know? Um, and I, she kept saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what that meant, but uh, I think it was her way of saying, Hi, honey, I'm glad you're home from school, and I don't think I can do this, is what I think she was trying to say. Um, but we've got a lot of stuff that we're going to be doing over the summer, and one of the, our, our best things that we do um, are our camps. And how many of you had a profound spiritual experience at, one of, at a camp? 
at a week of camp, right? Yeah, like all of, most of us have those for whatever reason. And I know we don't try to manufacture weird moments, but sometimes it's good to just come together and say, listen, yeah, we're gonna get away. We're gonna uh, kind of disconnect from our normal, normal life and we're gonna just come together and we're gonna experience life in a different way. We're gonna have a conversation about some things that ordinarily we don't talk about. And so these are a big deal. And so it is our time to register. It is our time to pay our deposits. Um, if you have any questions about that or if you wanna begin that process, we can actually do it in the lobby. Probably the easiest way to do it is to go on our website and to do it online. But our deposits are due and all of that for the, for the camps for the summer. And once June hits, we have like a high school week of camp and then a junior high week of camp and then a kid's week of camp and it just comes upon us. And then youthquake and then next thing you know, it's August, the college students are back and aren't we excited the college students are back? So, and we are very excited that our college students are back. It's gonna happen before you know it. Um, so that's kind of a housekeeping thing. I've got a, a little piece that I wanna talk about that's actually like a bridge between... Um, that announcement and my message, which is in Matthew chapter 11. Um, last week when I was finishing preaching from Matthew chapter 10, I was sharing from the text that Jesus says, you must love me more than. Um, you must hate your family in comparison to me and anybody that does not is not worthy of me. And he speaks some rather strong language. Um, whenever I preach those texts, whenever I share those biblical truths, um, here's my, my greatest concern, and we talked about this as a staff, so I can say as a staff and as an eldership, this is our concern, is that there are some people in the audience who hear those words of Jesus and have no idea how to put like tangible thought processes, they don't know how to put tangible things to those statements. You must love me more than, you must hate your father and mother. And anybody who does not hate their father and mother is not worthy of me. I mean, I think many of us as Christians, and this is what concerns us, is that many of us as Christians literally hear words like that and go, yeah, well, I can't do that. But anyway, so we, dis dis we dismiss it. We might not even be cavalier about it. It might not be, well, I don't care what Jesus says. No, it doesn't have to be that strong. It can be, I, I have no idea what that means. I just cannot fathom me loving my kids less. And instead of working out what that actually looks like and pursuing what God wants and the right way that God wants us to love those that he's entrusted to us, our families. We just kind of go, ah, oh, that's a complicated thing. Good thing my salvation isn't tied to that. And then we, we abandon it. And I, I would argue that's not the biblical response. Like, we're not happy about that as a leadership. We don't want us to be a group of followers of Jesus who go, I don't get that, so I'm just not gonna think about it and I'm just gonna go on like it didn't, like he didn't say it. And so we, I don't, I don't, we, we don't want that. And so we were trying to think about a number of ways that we can deal with that. I thought about like preaching a couple of messages in regards to how do we deal with our new, uh, or kind of our very popular American idols that exist today, which I would say number one is the family. I would say number two would be our careers. I think number three would probably be um, our, our fascination with pleasure and entertainment and sports and those kinds of things. I mean, those are our new idols. And, and by idol, what I mean is, is that we really find our joy in those things, we find our greatest delight in those things. We find our identity in those things above all other things. We really do. So we say we love God the most, but in the end, what stirs our emotions, what ignites many of our fears, what creates a lot of our anxieties that exist in life are actually stemming around our families and our careers and these things. 
And so instead of preaching a message through this, the other thing that we thought we would do is instead of it just being a couple of pastors talking to us, that we would actually engage some very real conversation. So I want you to hear this. Like for those of you that may maybe would like to have, to, to engage in this conversation to help those around them, we would like to solicit you to come and reach out to us and say, let's go into the studio and let's have some honest conversation about what real struggles look like. Like what are the real struggles of being a, a wonderful godly mother who genuinely loves her kids in the right way? in a God-honoring way? Because the answer isn't to just neglect your children. That doesn't honor God. And by the way, the word hate that is usually used, almost exclusively used actually, in the Bible is not the kind of hatred that becomes the opposite of love. I love versus hate. It's actually, hate is used in the context of choice. That I hate strawberry in comparison to chocolate ice cream because I love chocolate. And I choose chocolate. And it really is, it's that concept. It's not that I hate my family so I mistreat them and I don't love them and I don't, no, no, no. It's that when it comes to choice, my number one choice is Jesus. And Jesus guides my choice in these areas. That's really what the word means. So that's why Jesus can tell me to love and honor my parents and hate them in comparison to him. What that's describing is, and then when the choice comes, I lean towards my mother and my father because that's the way God desires it. And I would even argue that by choosing Jesus, we become the best spouses, we become the best children, we become the best everything when we choose Jesus. So we are going to be, I'm trying to get as much of this tape before a couple of us who are on our creative team are headed to Israel and so in a couple of weeks. And so we're gonna to try to get this done. I want you to be looking for this and if you would like to help engage in that conversation, we really are looking for some people who can honestly talk about their love for Jesus and their struggle with these new American idols, okay? Get it, American idols? Creative thinking at its best. <laughs> so not true. Okay, um, now the text. We are in Matthew chapter 11, and we are going to be dealing with um, uh, kind of John the Baptist and a struggle that he is going through. And it's something that we all go through. Uh, Ashley described it as doubt. Let's talk about doubt. And I, I want to begin by just sharing with you that if I were to, to, to describe to you, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. I know how to sing that song, actually. I've sung it a lot. But if I were to be honest, like, this is my story, this is my song, trying to love Jesus as much as I can. Sometimes I wrestle and sometimes I doubt and other times I believe. I mean, that would be my, I mean, when you hear that song and as I was singing it today, maybe because I knew about this message, I'm going, that is so me when I'm at my very best. But I don't think that's me all the time, if I'm gonna be honest with you. Like I go through periods, not where I'm just praising my Savior all the day long, but where I'm trying to figure out like what my Savior wants and what my Savior is doing. Like, I just don't get it, and I just don't see it. And I love the reality of God's word when it comes to us and says, you're not the only one that wrestles with these things. You're not the only one that faces these dilemmas. Now, there's two things that we need to avoid, okay? And, and, and extremes are always dangerous, always dangerous. One extreme is, and, and I don't think we live here now as a culture, 
but we've probably come through this in the last 50, 60, 70 years, but in church climate, that if you had doubts or if you had uh, real deep questions or concerns, you were just kind of labeled as an unbeliever and I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know why you, I don't know why you can't believe that. Right, So there's a lot of people that really come to church and church is a place to find answers and for all your doubt to go away. And so I've dealt with a lot of people who say, I always felt like I was out of place at church because I had questions and I don't think anybody else did. And I think a lot of that came from a, a culture or an attitude where first of all, we weren't brutally honest. I think that's where that came from. And we did have kind of a, there was faith and then there was doubt. And they opposed one another. Faith and doubt. By the way, that's actually not totally false, but... Let's be careful that we don't just go back to this mindset that if you have a question or if you're wondering, if you're, if you're doubting, that it's because you don't have any faith at all. How dare you? We, we, we're so good at this as a culture. We take the pendulum and we swing it the other way. And I'll be honest with you, I've gone to the edge of this one. And instead of doubt being something that we just so avoid, I have um, went through a period of my life graduate school and then a couple of years as a, a 28 year old college professors are dangerous people by the way okay and so I, and I, I've shared this with you um, I, I honestly wrestle with faith I wrestle with these issues okay and so I was, I was one of those guys 28 year old college professor looking at these college students trying to be as cool as them okay and I am if I, if I look back I feel, I feel like now that I celebrated my doubts that somehow I was able to, in my doubts, be more real than anyone else in the room. Oh yeah, you think you got doubts? I can out-doubt you. And I, I still had faith, but I, I, I just so was fascinated by that. I saw that as the realest of the real. And um, this is what happens when you begin to hit your 40s. God says to you, tell me you know that that is dumb, is what God says to me a lot. Tell me that you know that that is dumb. And I could hear myself talk. I could hear myself like celebrating this doubt and even trying to stir it up. Not to overwhelm somebody, but to stir it up like somehow it was more intellectually honest. And what God did was he gave me an incredible mom and an incredible wife who don't think like me at all. My wife rolls out of bed believing in Jesus, okay? You know what I'm saying? Literally rolls out of bed. God is good, is he not? Actually, we had a really rough day yesterday. Yeah, I know, but God is still good, is he not? I'm like, well, but I got some questions. Yeah, but God is not good, is he not? I'm like, well, honey, and, and, and I have. I've gone through these times where I'm, I don't think you're thinking about this. You need to, if you think about this a little more, I'm not trying to say that God's not good, but let's be honest. There are some tough questions, right? Well, sure, there are tough questions, but God is good, is he not? I don't, I don't think you're getting it, hon. And she looks at me and she says, I don't think you're getting it. So this, this is, this, I, I, I can see how God gave her to me. And I can look at her, and I, I remember looking, and because I love her, that is such a critical thing. When you look at someone you really love, okay, and now all of a sudden I've got, to, I've got these biblical truths, which hopefully is even greater than my feelings for my wife. I got these profound biblical truths, but now they gotta go push through this filter of how do I share these with my wife. And I remember thinking, like, I don't want her to become like me. Like, I don't wanna take her down some doubt road that's intellectually, I didn't even want to. I just thought, I kinda like who she is. And I think Jesus is doing that work in her. So I, I remember when my, my middle son was probably about, 
third or fourth grade, I asked him how he knew the Bible was true. How do you know the Bible's true? Dad, because God wrote it. Dumb E. I said, well, how do you know God wrote it? Well, because he says he did. Right in it. Thus say it the Lord, you know. And he's got these answers, and I'm just I'm trying to, you know, trying to get him to think, you know, because he's third grade, so he needs to be thinking about these things. And I, I kind of looked at him and he said, Well, and plus you and mom told me God wrote it. I said, well, how do you know he didn't lie to you? And he looks at me like, what? <laughs> and I remember looking at him going, we need to talk about this later. <laughs> Because I, I, I was so excited about pushing my kid through this and I wanted his faith to become his own and all of this. And I realized, what is wrong with me? And the Bible talks honestly about doubt, sometimes labeling it as unbelief or disobedience. And then honestly talk about it, t- talks about it more like it's a wondering. It's a, a pursuit of, of, of exploring who God is and, and what God's plan is for the world. And so this is what we run into this morning with John the Baptist. If, if we were to do just a character assessment of John, he really stands in a very small group of people where we don't have any dirt on them, right? David, we got dirt. Noah, we got dirt. Moses, we got dirt. We got dirt on almost everybody. Abraham, we got dirt, okay? Jesus, no dirt, right? Um, except after the cross when he took on our sins. Then he gets our dirt, but that's another sermon. Um, but we've got John the Baptist and there's really no dirt, John the Baptist has an amazing ministry, and I want to just kind of highlight this for you so that you can get a sense of who we're actually dealing with here. John the Baptist, his ministry looked something like this. Here's here's what his ministry was at its very core. He preached this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, change your mind. Repent, you're wrong. Repent, you need to fit into what God desires because the kingdom is coming. So he's very bold, very straightforward. John, tell me, about his, uh, tell, me, tell me about who he was. Well, here's some things about him. John wore a garment of camel's hair, had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You don't read that and go, yeah, he was just a guy that was a slave to his culture. No, he was actually had no problem. Even from the way that he appeared, you could just tell there was something different about him. He, he was out in the desert, and people wanted to go and see him. Because of the message that he preached, he looked different. He acted different. And when you do, expect opposition. Some specific words of John. When some religious people walk out, John says this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So obviously John's not trying to, he he would have failed that Dale Carnegie course, how to win friends and influence people, right? You brood of vipers is not a way to, in, to, in, to engage others and to kind of solicit their, uh, their, their love and their appreciation for you. So John is a straight shooter. He looks different. He asks different from the very beginning. But it's, it's more than just like this aspect of him. What I want to look at this morning, because John's struggle isn't just with his clothing or with his appearance or with his message. His struggle is with Jesus. The struggle is with Jesus. So when you reach back into Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter three, verses 11 and 12, what did, how did John view Jesus? Now, John chapter one says that John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. So he knew Jesus would be this sacrificial lamb, some level. Matthew three, verses 11 and 12 gives us 
clear, clearer, very clear insight into what John expected of Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 11, I, that would be John the Baptist, baptize you with water for repentance, but he, that would be the Messiah or Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, don't go Acts 2, Holy Spirit and fire, same thing. Now, Holy Spirit and fire, Holy Spirit, the blessing, the outpouring of God, fire, the outpouring of God's judgment. Okay, and you'll see here from the following verses, he's not talking Holy Spirit, fire. No, it's Holy Spirit, fire. Okay, so it's judgment and blessing. Okay, watch this. Now, this is how he views Jesus. Notice I got Southern there when I did the fire. Is that not cool? You do that in Canada, they think you're weird. You do it in God's country, Oklahoma, and people get it. Okay, verse 12, his winnowing fork. So the thing that kind of separates, that's a, a biblical idea, sheep, goats, wheat, weeds, okay, the dragnet, fish that are edible, fish that are not edible. This is what Jesus does. Everybody thinks of Jesus as this wonderful uniting figure. Sure, but it is he unites the wheat against the weeds. He unites the sheep over and against the goats. Sorry, guys. He unites those fish which are edible against those that will be discarded. That's how Jesus unites. Okay, we gotta remember that aspect of Jesus. John is describing him here, and he says this is what he's gonna be like. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear This is what Jesus will do, the Messiah will do. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. So glad I'm wheat. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Man, that's tough. But that's John's understanding of Jesus. And John is, is, we have have no issue, We we have no kind of recollection that what John doesn't like is his message. John appears to be like the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Isaiah, where God says you're gonna give this message and people are not gonna like this message and this message is gonna cause problems for you and you remain strong and I will keep you strong. That's John the Baptist. He's not, don't, don't say, he's really, uh, you know, t- I, I, the, the text gives us no inclination that he is worn down from the weight of his message. He may have been, but the text doesn't go there. John is preaching strong. And all of a sudden we get this text where John has a dilemma. And here's what's interesting is that when I have preached this in the past, and I love this text because this is one of those texts where I get to celebrate doubt. Hey guys, John doubts like you doubt. Do you doubt? I doubt. John doubts too. Isn't that awesome? John's like us. We're like John. Isn't that great? Ah, the text, (laughs) the more that I looked at it, the more I thought, oh, that's kind of there but you miss some pretty important things. And so um, this week has been a kind of an interesting week for me, uh, helping me see not new things in the text, but how I was reading way too much of Jim into the text when I've preached this in the past. Here's John's dilemma. Let's let the text figure this out for us. When Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, which we saw in chapter 10, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And now... When John, that would be the Baptist, not the disciple, when John heard in prison, so that's the context for John hearing, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's dilemma. 
Now, now it's true he is in prison, but the text nowhere gives the, like I didn't think I'd ever end up here. Actually, you call people a brood of vipers, I can tell you where you're gonna end up. When, when you say to Herod, hey, that woman you're married to, actually you shouldn't be married to her, like he knew where this was coming from. He's not shocked. Hey, I was out planting flowers and I ended up in prison. What's going on? That's not it. He is preaching a tough message. He is dealing with what happens to prophets. He knows he's a prophet. He's dressed like one. And now he's asking Jesus, hey, what are you, what's going on here? Are you the one, where does this come from? The majority of us, and I've done this, is I look at the text and I go, yeah, we all ask that when we're in prison. When we're going through our hard times, that's what we ask. You've been in a hard time, you ask that question. That's what I'm trying to get Andrea to understand. If you just looked at our hard circumstances more and focused more, you'd really begin to doubt and wonder what God's plan is in your life. And she just looks at me, but God is good. The problem wasn't, I don't believe the text is going to imply that the problem was his circumstances. His problem, listen to this, his problem is Jesus. John is like you and I, and and you and I are more like this, at least maybe I'm just gonna expose myself on this one here, but most people are totally fine with going through a lot of difficulties as long as they know we all gotta go through it. Like I'm, I'm willing to go through some pain. I'm willing to be mocked and to be ridiculed, but tell me Jay's gonna have to go through that with me. I don't like doing that alone. So as long as we're all gonna go through, I mean, how many of you would have no problem going through really, really bad things if we all had to go through it together? But your problem is, hey, how come, how come, um, how come my kid's sick? Your kid's not sick. How come my kid's sick? How come my marriage is in the toilet? How come I have to struggle at work? And Blaine seems to be getting a lot, he's not having a problem at all. Why is that? That's not, oh, I hate saying it's not fair, but that's what I'm thinking, it's not fair. And that's what we do, isn't it? And John's not, I don't even think it's about fairness. Think about this. I know what the Messiah is gonna do. The Messiah is gonna kind of clean house. The Messiah, just like I preach, the Messiah is gonna do that too. Look at the text. I don't think I'm reading into it in some kind of a look at these magical, no, just look at these words. John is in prison, and when he had heard about the deeds of Christ, the deeds of the Christ, right? That's what he came to preach. He came to preach the Christ, which is the word the Messiah, and he knew about Messiahs. Now, he, it was different, right? Like the, the, the people of, the religious leaders of their day thought the Messiah was gonna come and he was gonna give them this great kingdom and John didn't believe that. John believed that when the Messiah comes, he's gonna clean house. I understand what cleaning house is gonna be. It's almost like John is on the other side of the Pharisee problem. The Pharisees are wanting Jesus to kind of manage their, their world, their political world, their physical world. And John's wanting, let's get him. Like, I'm willing to go to prison. We going together? And Jesus is going, actually, and, and this is what's going on. You'll see it at the end of the text. The problem is, is that Jesus is uh, partying. Like, John's in prison, and um, I don't know if you've heard this, but Jesus was at a wedding the other day, and he was there and dancing and making wine for everybody, and I'm in prison. And, and John's not going, and therefore... I have a problem with this. No, John, I should be in prison. This is where prophets go. Tell me how prophets make wine. 
Tell me, why, tell me why Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and why he's eating and he's not dressed like me? You know, you know those Christian people who are just mad that you seem to be enjoying your Christian life so they don't think you're Christian enough? I saw you smiling the other day. I did. You look happy. You look like you're enjoying it. That can't be good. That can't be, you know those people? Okay, I can be one of those people. Everybody's gotta go through what I gotta go through. And I, I do that because I'm loving it so much, I want you to love it beside me, right? And Jesus is saying, or sorry, John is saying, like I don't know if you're the one because of what you're doing, like how you're acting. It says, so he sends word, are you the one? And, and I, I find this to be very interesting and we, we get a real sense, Jesus responds back to him. And Jesus doesn't go, John, how dare you? John, and, and by the way, one word that is never in this text is the word doubt. No, that's just, we, I think we add that. Now, I believe something is going on in John, hear me. And, and that may even be a good word, I, it might be. But, but what John seems to be doing, the more that I look at this text, is he is wondering, he is confirming. He is seeing the plan of God the way of God and the way that he is on, and he, it's like they're gonna miss, or at least maybe the way that he thought Jesus was gonna go, and I'm on this road, and the closer we get, I don't know how we're gonna make that leap. And anyway, so he sends word, Jesus, are you the one? And look at Jesus' response to John. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Again, notice the number of times. This almost sounds like it comes from John's gospel, but it's Matthew's. What you hear and what you see. This is the message that is preached because messiahs and prophets don't just show kindness, don't just um, be, be there and be the hands or be the hands and feet of Jesus. They're also the voice of God. So I want you to go and I want you to tell John everything that you hear, the words that are proclaimed, And then I want you to also talk about what you see. Now look at verse five. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. This text actually comes from like John's text, like the one that John knew, the one that John would have had tattooed on his arm or the one that John would have had like growing up above the the little, uh, the crib over his baby crib, right? This is the one, this is the prophecy of, of the one who's gonna come and proclairing make way the straight, make, make straight the way of the Lord and all of these. And Jesus preaches from that text, says you go back and tell John that these are the things that are being spoken and these are the things that are happening. Because he's probably hearing about the wedding at Cana and he's probably hearing about that party I threw the other day and he's kind of getting confused. Go back and tell him this that the prophecies that he was looking for that point to me are true. They're true. Jesus is so kind. He's so great. He knows what John needs. John, I think, needs some real confirmation at that moment, whether he's wondering or doubting, and Jesus offers the factual reality. And then this next verse is one that nobody underlines. I bet if I were to find every Bible in Stillwater, I would find almost none of them underlined on verse 6. And yet, it is probably one of the most important verses, of definitely of this section. Jesus makes this statement. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This verse 
sounds bizarre to me. Wait a second, what do you mean blessed is the one who's not offended by you? You're Jesus. Everything that you do is awesome and everything that you do is great and everything that you do fits perfectly in my plan. So Jesus, what do you mean? How could, how could Jesus offend someone? And yet I would argue that that really is where a lot of our doubts come from. A lot of our wondering and doubting actually comes from when, when we think Jesus is going to be here and we find out he's here. When Jesus all of a sudden comes along and says, hey, unless you hate your family and unless you, are will, unless you stop being anxious about these things, then you're not trusting me. And we're like, okay, wait, Jesus, I thought you were here to support me. And now you, you seem to be meaner than I thought you were going to be. I don't know if I like this version of you, Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, a lot of us, and this is why it's important that we we really go back and we ask the question, like, are you in love with the real Jesus? Or are you in love with some projected need that you might have or cultural view that you might have in terms of who Jesus is? And this is something that every generation, that every culture wrestles with. That we, we make God, and, and Jesus is God, so we make God, we make Jesus a projection of what we need the most, of what we want the most. And then we believe that when we get there, we'll find him and he will be the one and he will answer all of our stuff. But what happens when you get there and Jesus says no? And now what do I do? Now, now, I, now I don't know anymore. Now, now, I'm, now I, I'm, I'm really beginning to, to doubt or to wonder. Now, now, there really is a beautiful kind of a wondering in which I'm saying, Jesus, did I get this wrong? Or a, Jesus, where were you? And by the way, God's love and his grace and his kindness and his mercy is big enough for both. But let's begin by asking some honest questions. As you're dealing with the real Jesus, do you find yourself more mad or angry when he's not where he's supposed to be, not doing what you thought he would do? Or do you find yourself more like a child wondering, what happened? Like, why is this not? Like, Jesus, I, I need you to help me understand how these two things, which appear like they're just gonna sail by one another, help me understand how they fit. And one can be destructive. And one can be incredibly liberating. And which one do you wrestle with? A friend in ministry whose name happens to be John, and a number of years ago, his son was involved in a um, brutal car accident. And right after this brutal car accident, some amazing things came together in which it really appeared to John and to his wife, Nancy, that their son, Josh, might actually be like amazingly okay. And so at first they thought he was going to die. And then literally just some um, what appeared to be miraculous things that came together, they're going... This is going to be, God. God's going to do this mighty work. God's going to really bring like crazy healing to our son. And this is awesome. And um, 15, 16 years later though, Josh is uh, in a chronic state of pain. Um, still not able to communicate. Uh, his wife of six months when the accident happened left him. Because um, that sickness and in health was certain kinds of sickness, but not this kind of sickness. This isn't what I signed on for. So she left. Um, And before you just go, how dare she? I I really think about her a lot and go, I don't, that'd be tough. 
That'd be tough. But his mom and his dad, John and Nancy, stayed with him. And I had an opportunity uh, when, when they were going through some real hard, it looks like this is what, jo- what Josh's life is going to be like for the rest of his life. And they just had a hard time kind of making that picture of their new life fit with what they thought it was going to be and who Jesus was. And, and um, you need to understand, like I was in a position where I could speak lovingly and honestly with John. And I asked him, like, John, you, you knew that accidents happened, right? Like, you, you knew that, that stuff like this happens all the time, right? Yeah, but not, not, not to Josh, not to my son. That's what I can't come to grips with. It's not that he doesn't care about other people. Until it's your son, until it's your daughter, until it's your husband, until it's your spouse, until it's your mom, Man, I had to tell him, but John, listen, but we need to remember the truth about who Jesus Christ is. We need to remember the truth that Jesus isn't here to answer our beck and call. Jesus, there's, there's a bigger picture that's going on. And by the way, standing here, it's so much easier to say it. And even my chair is a lot easier to sit in than John's. But I, th- I think you know what it's like when Jesus doesn't do everything you tell him to do and doesn't kind of unfold as you want him to unfold as your life doesn't just unravel like you want it to unravel. And now all of a sudden you've got the real Jesus pushing back against you and he says on a constant basis, are you still okay with this? Are you still okay with this? And Jesus reveals the truth about himself. He doesn't just say, oh, I get it, John. Don't worry, it'll all be okay. Now he, re- he reveals the truth, and I believe that John was probably greatly encouraged by this truth. Now what I find most fascinating is that the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't go, well, I took care of the number one problem, and that's John, and now I can move on. No, nope. Jesus is done. He offers a very kind and gracious response to John, and then he looks at the crowds, and for whatever reason, Jesus decides to go after them. He speaks rather sternly or strongly. He offers a rather harsh critique of the crowds. And I'm sure at some point in time they're going to wrestle, like John's going to wrestle, who is this Jesus? And is he worth devoting my entire life to? So it picks up in verse 7, and here's what Jesus says to the crowds. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Uh, read shaken by the wind, meaning like somebody that just to and fro, whatever you, whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. I'm just trying to be popular. That's all I'm trying to do. What then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, I've already described to you what he looked like. No, well, that's not me. He says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Here's what's interesting. As Jesus is critiquing the crowds, he is not only talking about John, but he's talking to ultimately talk about himself. This is he whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. In essence, telling the crowds, John came as Elijah to prophesy about the Messiah And I am him. If anything, this is one of the clearest examples of Jesus speaking to the crowds. I am Messiah. 
Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet, one of, yet, yet the one who, uh, who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Again, John is the greatest person born, greatest prophet. Why? Because he was the one chosen by God to, to prepare the way for me. And once we're in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom is even going to be greater than John. Why? Because it is the message that matters most. And let me just tell you, this is why we stand in an incredible position today. So you go up to John the Baptist and you say, hey, John, tell me what you know about Jesus. Oh, he's the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to do some amazing things. Well, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to establish the kingdom. What is it? Tell me what that looks like. You know, I died before that happened. And so I'm just here to tell you it's him. But my, 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 my message is over there. You got anything else? No, that's it. That's all I got. I died. Okay? And if I were to say to you, hey, tell me about Jesus. What do you know about Jesus? Like how many of you know that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins and the sins of the world? How many of you know that? Wow. So your message is greater than John's. How many of you heard, I don't know if you've heard, maybe you have, that Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, giving proof to all of this in terms of who he was? How many of you know that story? Okay, not all of you, but some of you know that. That's great. Like, do you realize that that is what makes you greater than John? You have an incredible message, an incredible opportunity to share these profound truths. And John didn't have that. Jesus says, listen, John is the greatest man ever born up until now because he got to reveal who I am. And the least in the kingdom is even going to be greater than that. Jesus is speaking very honestly about himself. He says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law, which is kind of the Old Testament, prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. John is Elijah who is to come. Verse 15, he was ears to hear, let him hear, which is a way of Jesus saying, and not all of you will get this, but some of you will. And if you have an ear to hear the truth about who John the Baptist, if you have an ear to hear the truth about who Jesus is, if you have a heart that will respond to who Jesus is and not just who you want Jesus to be. One of the most powerful truths about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that it is not only something that you and I evaluate, but it is something that evaluates us. It is not just something that you evaluate, but it is something that evaluates you. Do you have ears to hear that John is Elijah and Jesus is Messiah? And then Jesus looks at the crowd. This is where it gets a little intense as he's closing his message. But to what shall I compare this generation? You're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Like you don't know how to be happy, you don't know how to be sad. Like all you know how to do is complain. Like it's never enough, it's never right. It's never what you want. You're a bunch of selfish children is what John is saying. And it is this level of selfishness, it is this level of self-absorption that causes you to miss the one who will prophesy about the Messiah and the Messiah himself. Look at verse 18. This is how I know 
what John is really wrestling with. Verse 18, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, within God's kingdom, there are Johns who have that kind of a message. A little room on this explanation. And there are Jesuses who have a little bit of a different like, call and a little bit of a different expression. And yet, under God's sovereign plan, there's both. And I love the statement. Jesus says, yet wisdom will be justified by our children. The, the way that all of this works out cannot be fully discerned until the end is done. And one of the reasons why you and I know that is because Jesus doesn't end up having a great party at the end of his life, and he's just, thank you, good night, I'm out of here, love you guys, I'm going back to the Father now, thank you for all the presents and all of the gifts. No, he goes through the cross. He dies for our sins. He knows what it's like to be rejected and despised. Wisdom will be proved right by her children, by her actions. And so there is eating and drinking, and there is mourning and sadness. And both of them fit under the plan of God. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. So here's how I want to end this. The more that I think about how we look at the Christian life, this is what matters. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is, this is my story. This is my story of my life. And I, I, I began to think about this idea that there, there are, even within, like, within literature, there are different kinds of great stories, great epics. And there are those that are adventures. Okay? And th- this is what an adventure is. An adventure is um, a story where one or a group of people decide to leave their lives temporarily so that they go out and experience things. Like, let's go on trips and let's have some fun and let's do something where we just experience just the greatest joy of our lives and let's try something risky and we'll know what it's like. We're thrill seekers and we're going to experience this and we're going to do all of these different things. So experience, experience, and experience and then we'll just get to go back at the end and go back to our lives. That's what an adventure is. And I've even heard the Christian life described as an adventure. That you start out on this journey and you do these. I went on a mission trip. I loved Youthquake. That was awesome. And then later on I did this. But then I went back to my life. Went back to my life. That's an adventure. And then there are quests. Adventures you usually go, hey, you want to go? You want to go? The quest is... I don't want to go, but I feel like I got to go. Quest is something that is like, not just isn't that fun, but isn't that compelling. And those who are on quests, like wrestle and struggle all the way through. And we didn't sign up for this, but we agreed to be a part of this, and it's more than I ever thought. And what's interesting is, is there can be a lot of similarities between adventures and quests. So much so that you and I can even be confused about the difference between the two. Right now you're thinking, I don't understand the point. I don't understand the difference between an adventure and a quest. Here's the difference. At the end of it, should we ever go back to our lives? When you go back after a quest, like you're not the same. Like you're not, you're, you'll never be the same again. You, you can't go back to your life because your life your life is radically different. 
I wasn't just picking some really cool moments for me to go through. Like I was on a journey, so by the time that I went back, I had scars, I had, I mean, I was a completely different person by the time that I was done. And I think what happens to a lot of us is that we sign on with Jesus because it just sounds like a great spiritual adventure. And so we kind of pick things, we kind of organize our lives in such a way so that at the very end of it, we can go back to our life and kind of carry on. And that was never the way of Jesus. Like John's in it, and John's gonna be taken to the end, in it. The disciples are in it. There's no escape from it because Jesus is it. And I genuinely believe that a lot of the doubt or wondering that you go through is because you're in the middle of an adventure and you're kind of planning to go back to your life and you're beginning to realize this is either more costly or this is more difficult than I thought. And a lot of that wondering that leads to doubt and frustration is because you just didn't feel like this adventure that you were on delivered. I really want you to spend some time thinking through that. Like, is Jesus... Like of someone who's just kind of your tour guide, kind of you taken through these different experiences. So in the end, we can just have a better you. Or is Jesus the one who has called you to himself, an invitation to follow? In which should you ever go home, and you know that's a metaphor, you are now so radically altered, radically altered, not just good, not, not, not just laughter, not just excitement, but all of it, the abundance of life, that you go back and um, like your life will never be the same because you've encountered him. One is not real biblical Christianity and the other one is. I pray you find him and he will be your greatest joy. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your kindness to us, for your mercy to us, God, I pray that as we think through and reflect on what it is that we have signed up for, that God will be honest about maybe even why we struggle with you. Help us see the deeper and more profound truths that are only found in the identity of Jesus and his purpose in this world. God, lead us from a life of adventure to a life of transformation. For your glory, others' benefit, and our greatest joy. Christ's name we pray, amen.